I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Hellboy 2 did for the reputation of two fairies. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... James Hunt. And Michael Leader. Mike, you're back! Hey! So, yeah, it's been a while. Well, was, was the last time you were on Logan? No, I think the last time I was on was the London Film Festival special oh, with James. Yeah, of that course. doesn't count though because Joe didn't listen to it. Oh, that I was a nice one. I, d- I did listen to it. I wasn't on it, but I did listen to it. <laughs> In fact, the only the only podcast that I do listen to are the ones that I'm not on. <laughs> because by the time I've been on them and edited them, I've listened to them more than enough to actually listen to them with like the little musicy bits on as well. Um, that was a great podcast. Um, but Logan was the last full episode. And full be- episode, yeah. And before that, you were on our Hellboy episode. That was the first time I was on, yeah. yeah. Way back when. Yeah. There is a correlation here, and it's because you've actually read Hellboy comics. I have, yeah. Yeah. Have you not read any, James? I was with Seb last time, I think. I've tried hard to read some, but I've never managed to find the time. There's so much of them. There's so many. It's Where very do- overwhelming. Where yeah. do you There's start? a reading order and everything. <laughs> I I read some for the recommendations, so I've I've got more Hellboy knowledge than James does. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see in a minute. Um, <laughs> so uh, on the podcast this week, we'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news, uh, and then we'll discuss um, Guillermo del Toro's 2008 movie Hellboy 2: The Golden Army. Um, and also, I think I mentioned on the mini side, released a week before The Dark Knight. So we're, for 2018, we are purely doing films released in 2008. I'm not sure what that leaves us for the next few weeks, but um, if it's a bit, I'm going to try and stick to it. Uh, <laughs> but before any of that, as I said last week, we're now three, three years into the podcast. I know pretty much everything there is to know about comic books. And as I just told James... I know more than he does about Hellboy. So, but Mike, maybe this is a challenge for you. Can you tell me something about Hellboy that I just don't know? Is there something from Hellboy that, you know, from the many, many volumes that I haven't looked at? Don't, if you pick something from the one volume I have looked at, you're going to be in trouble. So tell yeah, tell me something about Hellboy that I don't know. Sure. He is the rightful heir to the British crown. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Tell me more about that. (laughs) It's uh, quite late on in the series that's just titled Hellboy. Um, It turns out that uh, 
he is the last surviving um, relative of King Arthur from his mother's side, from the half-human side. And during the Wild Hunt, which is one of the kind of big epic uh, stories later in the series, he wields Excalibur to to take down some bad guys. Wow does that does that give him prominence over the Winters? I mean, I I, I fancy him in a fight between her match. I, and himself, I think. But... I mean, I mean, Hell, Hellboy can can take all manner of beatings, so I think he's he he outclasses everyone really, doesn't he? Okay, the thing that I did actually specifically want to ask you about in in regards to Hellboy, because we now know that Guillermo del Toro is never going to make this third movie uh, mm-hmm. in in this series, but his idea was always that he wanted to do it because there was this big story with Hellboy that he was going to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is that story, and how big a deal was it in the in the Hellboy comics? Well, uh, the Hellboy... this is difficult, isn't it? Because Guillermo del Toro's version of Hellboy was different to the comics version. Yeah, you're completely right, James. Yeah. There wasn't the same ending to the story. What's really hard talking <coughs> here is that uh, the Golden Army bears. Uh, well, we can get to this. It, it bears very little relation to the comics, and Guillermo del Toro is clearly bringing a lot of his own ideas to the table, um, and. Really, in terms of where the two films fall in the sort of continuity of the comics, in terms of the publication history, it, they're they're quite early in the Mignola verse, so to speak, and it's only you know, this whole overwhelming kind of multiple spin-offs, multiple series thing happened alongside the first Hellboy film and Golden Army, and that's where Mike Mignola started <clears throat> nailing down what his overarching story was and his overarching characters were. Right. So I have no idea what you can. From the film itself of the Golden Army, you can get hints at what Del Toro was interested in. This idea that Hellboy has a destiny related to Hell, um, but I have no idea what he would have picked up on. So, is aspect. is there any is there anything is there any kind of destiny or thing that we are led to in the comics with Hellboy, or is has has there been like one big defining story that oh. that things are built to, or is it very much episodic? Um, oh, definitely with Hellboy, yeah. Uh, and then Hellboy in Hell, which, uh, I mean, even the title of which is something of a spoiler. was, a nu- <laughs> that, was, was gonna a... be, that was going to be my fact about Hellboy, which is that he spent <laughs> ten issues dead. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, there is, I mean, it's it starts out very episodic, and the volume I recommended you last time was you know, very much these sort of short or mid-length individual stories. Mm. And that does still, that's, that's still a factor throughout all of the old Hellboy and in fact it's gone back around now to being episodic but for a big chunk of time Mignola did tell one big story which is a bit too complicated to get into now I'd, I'd probably say <laughs> <laughs> so basically we've, we've discovered that not only could you tell me things about Hellboy that I don't know you could literally fill up the entire podcast telling me about them <laughs> I'm really surprised there isn't one of these sort of, uh, you know, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men type podcasts about Hellboy because there are so many series and there's a set reading order and everything. It's, you know, I'm surprised someone's not taking it on. Hey, Mike. How much, <laughs> how much free time have you got? Hardly you... any, but <laughs> I'll fit it in. <laughs> You've got two listeners here should you decide to ever uh, kick that off. Fantastic. And I could maybe guest on one episode and tell you about the one... Uh, the one, the one Hellboy story. You did. Yeah, you did get me to read. <laughs> you know, my first, my first ever freelance job was interviewing Mike Mignola. Oh, cool! For, uh, at what stage was that? For Catherine Bray at Four Talent. Oh wow! Was that around the time of this film? 
it was for the first film, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. He told me that there were things that he didn't want Del Toro to put in the film, so he gave him original art to convince him not to do it. Right. And then the flip side happened after Hellboy 2. He wanted <laughs> to put more of his stuff back in. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, we'll move on to our news section now. Um, and Mike, I'm going to come straight back to you because... As I mentioned before, you were on our Logan episode, and uh-huh. um, I think you've probably seen um, a lot more of the movies that are in the surrounding conversation for this piece of news than either James or I have. Um, Logan was nominated for an Academy Award this week. Uh, it was nominated in the Best Adapted Screenplay category, um, which I think if, if you're if you're not really an awards buff might might sound like huh okay so it was nominated for an award like Guardians of the Galaxy two was nominated for visual effects There's Suicide no- Squad one <laughs> yeah Su- Suicide Squad won an Oscar for makeup last year mm-hmm. um, so I, I mean sometimes you kind of say okay it's been nominated in a technical category that's fine um, a dancing screenplay is a pretty big deal like it's probably one of the top like six or seven Oscars that they hand out right in in terms of the profile of that award and not that kind of any award or you know the thing that their their craft is any more important but certainly in terms of profile and certainly in terms of a genre film like logan cracking into that race it feels like a little bit of a breakthrough and it feels like an acknowledgement of like logan being taken a bit more seriously as a, a, than your average superhero movie would be yeah, certainly. It's the first superhero movie to be nominated in a screenwriting category. It's um, not the first comic book movie, though, which is what some people have been saying. Yeah, Ghost World. Ghost World was one, yeah. was uh, Road to Perdition as well, I think, was the other one, wasn't Yes, it? yeah. But they are very much... They're, they're comic books that are in genres that are more likely to be nominated for Oscars <laughs> than... Although, if you think about it, Logan, you, you can think about the sorts of films. This is a year where genre films in general are very well represented across the board at the Oscars. Yeah. From, like, Get Out for horror and The Shape of Water uh, for sort of fantasy. So this and, and thinking back historically where you'd have Lord of the Rings films and so on up top, it doesn't feel like as much of a watershed moment for me as it probably should do because Logan... It's not like, I don't know, what Spider-Man Homecoming being nominated for that best at the screen. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a film that was very consciously built from the ground up as being the prestige um, superhero movie. Yeah, it is, it is a strange year for the Oscars. I mean, you talk about Lord of the Rings, though. Even, even that, it took like the Oscars three years to kind of board that particular train and go, yeah, okay, these are good movies, let's recognise all three in the final year. Mm. Um, and it has to be said that the the kind of the changing makeup of the Oscar voting has probably has probably fed into a lot of these genre films yeah, being able to break in. Yeah, it would have been it would have been nice though if I think with Logan it's been a while since I've I've not rewatched it, so it's not been since uh, we last no. spoke that uh, I've seen it, but it would have been great to have Patrick Stewart nominated instead. Um, yeah, if, if you had to have one nomination from that film, I do think adapted screenplay is a bit of an odd choice for this because it's not like it's not like it's really adapting an existing story. Oh, James, oh, that, don't, that's the don't, technicality. Yeah, thing, you yeah. can't you can't quibble with uh, the Oscars <laughs> rules if it like a, se- <laughs> a sequel is automatically in the adapted screenplay race. 
Okay. Um, so I think Toy Story 3 got nominated in this category. Well, this is kind of more like In the Loop being an adapted screenplay because it's based on the character of Malcolm Tucker. So, yeah. Right, okay. So Logan is because of the characters being used elsewhere. Which, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll let them have it. I don't think Logan would have stood a chance in original screenplay this year anyway because all, you know, four of the five nominees in Best Original Screenplay are up for Best Picture. Yes. And the other one is The Big Sick, which was such a great screenplay. Mm. So, um, but but yeah, still. <laughs> um, adapted screenplay, though, um, and there has been a couple of shocks in this category. I wouldn't say Logan's the favourite, but I think looking at that list, it's it's maybe even got shot. Yeah, it seems to be maybe that or Call Me By Your Name, I guess. Yeah, um, so Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name is an absolute lock for this category. Uh, there's the disaster artists in there, Molly's Game and Mudbound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, it's a weak field, admittedly, but. I mean, I've, I've not, I've the only film from that list that I've seen is the disaster artist. Um, did you like that one, Joe? Um, I did. Yeah. Um, I like, I didn't love it. I, I, but I was transfixed by James Franco, which I think is, uh, <laughs> just probably all, all the film needed to do to entertain me. Um, yeah. but again, I, I don't think a screenplay would probably not have been the, category that I would have chosen to nominate that film. I think uh, James Franco has paid the price for extracurricular yeah. activities in terms yeah, of missing exactly. out on his nomination. Um, yeah. Interestingly, Wonder Woman didn't make the list anywhere. Um, are, are either you guys surprised about that? It, it seemed like it had a bit of buzz. Um, but I, what I do wonder is because I, I kind of said earlier in the year I don't think I didn't think it was ridiculous to be talking about Wonder Woman as as a legitimate Oscar contender in some of the bigger categories. Um, having said that, you look at the the list of the films that are nominated for Best Picture, and this seems like one of the strongest years. Yeah, in recent in memory. memory. <laughs> yeah, I certainly I, can't think of a darkest a, a, hour though. Really. Dark well, that's that's the, that's the the exception that proves the rule. Every other film is. <laughs> I mean, maybe the post is the other weak film in in that category, but otherwise, it's the most exciting lineup in years. I kind of I kind of liked the post, Mike. Did you like the post, sorry, Joe? I, I, I thought I thought it was um, I thought it was a very kind of like good functional movie that uh, yeah. I kind of I kind of appreciated that it didn't feel like it was it was going for Oscary kind of moments or it felt. I appreciated how underplayed it was. But it's a production where um, once it was announced, they penciled in Best Picture and Best Actress well, for that production, really, didn't they? So, <laughs> yeah. I uh, think three billboards will win, but it will win it for In Bruges. <laughs> right. I do find that fascinating. I mean, we're talking about Hellboy today, and then ten years later, you've got Guillermo del Toro um, you know, as Best Director and Best Picture. Yeah, as um, I said uh, on Twitter, he's probably glad he didn't do Pacific Rim 2. Or The Hobbit. <laughs> or the other 15 things he dropped out of to do this yeah exactly yeah um mike how is the shape of water before we get to um have you seen oh, it it's stupid because oh, yeah. it hasn't got a shape it's just whatever container you put it in i based on that exactly it's uh, you know zero stars <laughs> gtfo <laughs> no oscars um, I loved it. It's such a, a an exquisitely kind of produced film, and in a similar way to Crimson Peak, he can just create these worlds. And means the first hour, I'm just staring, kind of mouth open at the production design and everything. And mm. it's a ve- it, it it's actually a really good 
we can talk about this later, but I think it's a really good like um, Hellboy influenced film because it's the world of secret government agencies and sort of melancholy and the, the, the character of the monster is very similar to Ape Sapiens. <laughs> I yeah. was going to say, it's interesting to be watching like his other sexy fishman story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what this film is, really. It's a sexy fishman story. So even when this film starts to seem a little bit like the safe option at the Oscars, you've got to remember how perverse <laughs> it is, really, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I just particularly, as a moviegoer, I'm thoroughly looking forward to the next few months to, before, uh, as we kind of get up to the Oscars to being able to see some of these movies um i'd like i've, I've seen a few but um I'm, I'm looking forward to some of the rest of them coming out in cinemas <laughs> actually being released in the uk yeah i've got my ticket for the shape of water so that's good um but yeah can't uh can't wait to see uh, ladybird Lady well. can't wait to see phantom fred um three billboards is one that we we keep flirting with watching each weekend when we go to the cinema and end up picking something else instead um like we we were just in the mood the other weekend that we turned up to Simra. It's three billboards or it's Paddington two, and I, oh. I like. <laughs> I think we made the right call. To be honest, Paddington two could have got in that best picture race, and I wouldn't have been upset. Um, it was was didn't qualify this year. It's qualifying for next year. Oh yeah, so, of course. Because still US time release. for Hugh to get his best supporting actor <laughs> nomination, which is well, he might win the BAFTA still. Yeah, I guess. which is insane, but I but I can't disagree. I would put my money on Get Out because I think the wind is behind it this year. For best picture, yeah, it's got momentum. It has, yeah. I, I, there's there's a bunch of stuff in there that I I wouldn't be surprised to see win. And as as someone who is not averse to um, gambling on such things, um, <laughs> I think that this year is going to be really fun because um, all of the all of the kind of precursors that people take as like oh well this this hints at this and this hints at that is all like thrown into the shredder this year because the because the voting makeup of the academy is so entirely changed it it kind of doesn't like oh did that person win the sag Uh, Hmm. great it doesn't that doesn't really matter because you've got such a different group of the body of people voting on the oscars now Uh, so i think we could see some some surprises um but you know, I think we've already seen it reflected in the nominations, and it, and in a good way because I think you could have you could have seen some things getting thrown in there and people raising an eyebrow and going, "Really, are those Oscar movies?" But um, everything that I've seen so far that has been nominated, like something like something like Get Out in particular, you know, probably wouldn't have been nominated two three years ago. Um, but would have been the movie that we'd have all been saying at the end of the year. If only this could get nominated for Oscars. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm so delighted that Daniel Kaluuya has been nominated as well um, for, a, for a, a performance that, again, doesn't normally get nominated. Um, and he's just a fantastic actor. We'll get to talk about him on this podcast at some point in Kick-Ass 2. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Black Death. Yeah, are there any are there any other uh, superheroes? Who should we we should be looking at the supporting actor categories for who's going to be in a superhero movie next? <laughs> hmm. Jen- is Jen- Jenkins hasn't done Richard Jenkins hasn't done a superhero film, has he? No, he'd, he'd, he'd be a good fit. They must find a. I mean, he's the next Uncle <laughs> Ben, surely. Yeah, I'll be honest. I just we I think we all just agree. Bring back Sam Rockwell to the MCU. <laughs> I oh, can yeah. 
I can sort of see Woody Harrelson and Tenny up in the DCU being massively underused. I'm surprised he's not done it. I suppose he did the Hunger Games instead, which was sort of his. And he did the Apes film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's done his bits and pieces. Uh, do, do we want to talk about the visual effects nomination for Guardians of the Galaxy? It's it's in there with with Planet of the Apes, with The Last Jedi, with Kong Skull Island and Blade Runner 2049. So with all the other bad films then? <laughs> James. <laughs> I don't know why people don't like me. I'm the voice <laughs> I've seen four of those films and thought that they were all fine. <laughs> I think it's it, it maybe maybe Blade Runner is going to sweep some of these ones. I think. Do you think uh, Blade Runner is the, the only one that really impressed me visually? Do you think he he finally gets his Oscar, Mike? <laughs> Who sorry? Um, oh, Roger Deakins. Oh, Deakins. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I I, um, I I I wasn't that impressed with his work on that. I'd I, I, um, I'd have to go and see it again because I. Just, didn't yeah. think that it was as good as some of his previous work. I I but... buy into the argument on that film that like it's stunning. It's some of the stuff he does with light is stunning, but I think it's often like in opposition to the film rather than actually serving it. But they've got you've also got to, to take into account that Hoyt van Hoytemer, who's Christopher Nolan's DP, hasn't had a Oscar yet either, and they put an IMAX camera in a Spitfire in Dunkirk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> Dunkirk, it's a good-looking movie. Hey, Oscar chat. We don't normally get this uh, to discuss these kind of films on Cinematic Universe, so uh, that's been a delight. Uh, we'll move on now to um, our second piece of news and a movie that I'm going to go ahead and guess is nominated for an Oscar this time next year. Um, the Incredibles 2 has uh, announced some new characters and voice actors. Um, so the first one is um, a recasting. Um, Jonathan Banks has been uh, is coming in to voice Rick Dicker, who is you know he's like the suit that relocates Mister Incredible every time he gets fired from a job. Um, so Banks is coming in to do that. Uh, his Better Call Saul uh, co-star Bob Odenkirk is joining the cast as a character called Winston Diva. Um, who is a guy who leads a world-class telecommunications company alongside his genius sister, Evelyn. Now, Evelyn Diva is voiced by Catherine Keener, um, the brilliant brainchild behind her brother Winston's telecommunication company. She knows her way around tech. Uh, we've also had Void announced, who will be voiced by Sophia Bush, who is a young, overeager, wannabe super and a mega fan of Elastigirl. Her superpower is the ability to divert and manipulate objects. Um, <laughs> to divert objects? Yep. Um, but also she creates voids that allow objects to appear and disappear and shift in space. Which sounds pretty cool. Um, and then there is also a character called the Ambassador who will be voiced by Isabella Rossellini. Uh, who, is <laughs> a, who is committed to the support and legislation of superheroes. So basically the plot of this mu- movie is going to be that these divas, the Bob Odenkirk and Catherine Keener characters, um, are going to be trying to help make superheroes legal again. And they aid uh, th- to aid with that, they recruit Elastigirl uh, to be their spokesman. So that leaves Mr. Incredible at home to watch over the rest of the family. Um, then, when a new villain hatches a brilliant and dangerous plot, the family, and Frozone, of course, must find a way to work together again, which is easier said than done. 
So, that all sounds fun. We've got those four new characters introduced. Winston Diva, Evelyn Diva, Void, and the Ambassador. Which one of those is secretly the villain, do we think? (laughs) (laughs) It could be any of them, couldn't it? I would put money on uh, the Ambassador. Yeah, Isabella Rossellini. (laughs) Sounds good. Yeah. That sounds very good. Um, I'm quite excited for The Incredibles 2, you know. Um, I, I... I like the idea of them putting Elastigirl front and centre because, as we discussed on the first podcast, she's the best character and she's got the best voice because she's Holly Hunter, so she's mm-hmm. the best. Um, and I, I kind of, I, I kind of want to see Pixar playing in the superhero arena again with, you know, kind of technology that's advanced by ten to fifteen years. Yeah, and Brad Bird coming back behind the animated camera. That's, yeah, that's, you know, that's, I'm, I'm excited for that really. It's it's a shame in some respects that kind of when the directors do return to Pixar, it's often with their tail between their legs a little bit. Um, because I think Brad Bird took a bit of a hit with Tomorrowland. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I would say it's a, it's a different, slightly different situation for me with Brad Bird in that he has made some fantastic live action movies. And I think he is yeah. one of, he is one of our like greatest visual storytellers. Um and it's, you know, just perfect for something like The Incredibles. Uh, whereas Andrew Stanton, I think, is not. <laughs> do, do we, forg- do we forgive him for foisting Colin Trevorrow on the world, though? <laughs> yeah, that's true, isn't it? Was, it? was it that he... What was the movie that he was offered? And he was like, no, no, you want Trevorrow. Was that Jurassic, Jurassic, Jurassic World? World? Yeah. <laughs> no, you want Colin Trevorrow. This guy is the next big thing. <laughs> Well, he well, Jurassic World did go on to be the whatever the fifth highest grossing film of all time or something, didn't it? So yeah, well done, Colin Trevorrow. What's the, yeah. We got we got we got another one of those this year. I'm going to guess that's not Oscar nominated. I'm going to going to put it out there. Just going to do all my Oscar predictions for next year um, <laughs> on record. Yeah, on the record. Will it, Incredibles two a lock for animated feature next year? I mean, if the category's as weak as it was this year, then yeah. <laughs> Oh, but that's just the films that were actually nominated. There were so many that fell by the wayside that, uh, you know, the smaller films, the independent films that didn't make it into the final mm. five. When well, they the norma- Boss Baby and Ferdinand get in, it's a bit, <laughs> bit sad. They normally, they normally, like, siphon off one, maybe two slots for those lesser-known animated films that everyone can then mm. wax lyrical about for a couple of months. Um, uh, that didn't happen this year. Tell you what else didn't get in there, to the outrage of the internet, the Lego Batman movie. <laughs> it on was this... a good film. It wasn't. I mean, I, yeah, I don't think it should have been in there, but it was. You know, it would have been better no. to see that in there than some of the others, maybe. Listen, if, if the Lego <laughs> movie say, didn't get nominated, if... the Lego Batman movie should not be fucking nominated. <laughs> I mean, the problem is, even as someone who wasn't a massive fan of the Lego Batman movie, Boss Baby and Ferdinand, both of them. You saw. Uh, you, you see a lot of animated films, don't you, James? Oh yeah, I've seen the My Little Pony movie twice. <laughs> I, I don't want to dig into this on the podcast, James, but I am I'm baffled by your hatred for Early Man before it comes out. It, it, Have you seen the trailer? No. Cavemen playing football. It's a football movie. That's the thing that puts me off. Yeah. yeah. Ardman though. <clears throat> I've never liked movie. an Ardman film. <laughs> what? I don't know what to tell you. I just I find it excruciating to watch. 
We need to remember. I just all I think is like how many man hours went into making this, and this is what (laughs) we came up with. (laughs) Chicken run, chicken run, but it can't hide. (laughs) Wow! I'm just gonna keep naming them, see what other puns you can come up with. Curse curse of the were rabbit. (laughs) I haven't got any more. Okay. That's a shame. I, I think specifically, I loathe Wallace and Gromit, and that soured me to everything oh, I'd yes. have done. Oh, actually, and no, because I hated the Creature Comforts adverts before I even knew they were admin, So This goes uh, right back to like decades. Okay. Uh, Shaun the Sheep? Nah. Okay. Uh, we'll move on now to our next piece of news. Um, and literally, just before we we're about to start recording tonight, this broke. Um, on the internet. I would not be at all surprised if by the time this podcast is released that there have been many more pictures released. <laughs> um, but we got our first look at um, Captain Marvel in a version of her costume, I'm going to say. I don't by any means think this is the final costume. No. Um, she's in a kind of like a... I don't what's what's the best it's like aquamarine. Is that is that the is that the right colour? Well, it's kind like a greenish version. Turquoisey yeah. trim thing. I mean yeah. I think I think it's intended to be green and I will tell you why that is. It's because the it's be standard CG'd. the standard uniform of Cree characters, Cree sentries, is green and white. And the original Captain Marvel had a green and white costume. Oh, until later going to his uh, red, blue, and yellow one. And basically, I think that's what's happening here, is she will originally have that sort of Cree-inspired green and white look and later go to a red, white, and blue, uh, red, yellow, and blue look. Yeah, because on the hmm. on the pictures that they released at Comic-Con last year, it was that, and they, they weren't, they were, you know, concept art, but it was all the the red, blue, and gold. Yeah. So this this feels like a a prototype. It's not. It's definitely not going to be something that they're going to be like CGing and animating like they did with Green Lantern's costume, is it? Because I, I, I would not I, expect so. <laughs> and are we are we certain that this isn't like a backdoor gender flipped remake of Green Lantern? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're having to change the plot so it doesn't resemble Green Lantern. Which doesn't sound like a bad idea. Captain Marvel is very unlike Green Lantern in a lot of ways. But the origin, yeah. Well, okay, so in in Green Lantern, what happens is, like, Alien crashes on Earth, gives his powers to the nearest guy and says, like, okay, you're in the space police now. In Captain Marvel, an alien comes to Earth and essentially says... Oh, actually, Earth is quite nice. I'm going to quit being in the space, please. Mm. And as part of that, like, transfers of his powers to Carol Danvers slash Miss Marvel slash Captain Marvel. So, the costume itself, what do you think of it, guys? Looks good. Yeah, looks looks fine. I, I find it very hard to get excited over costumes <laughs> on set picks anyway. I'm it. excited because it's Brie Larson in the costume. I think she's fantastic. But uh, we'll <laughs> wait and see. Do you know what I'm excited about? It, it doesn't look like a sexy version of the costume. It's just a superhero costume. Yep. Just so last week when I was complaining about the wasp costume, like this is not this this looks like on 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 the legs of the costume, it looks like the legs of Paul Rudd's Ant-Man costume rather than Evangeline Lilly's wasp costume. 
There's no kind of window in the costume so that we can see her midriff. There's no like little boob panel at the top. It goes all the way up to her neck. It looks functional. Fan fucking tastic. It's about time. That's Good. that's that's what I'm the most excited about this costume for. <laughs> and yeah. as as you said, Mike, it's Brie Larson, and Brie Larson is great, and she looks so happy in her costume, and I am happy too. <laughs> Good. Uh, so I think that's about all we can say about that. As I said, I imagine we'll have probably seen the full the full costume on the internet by the time this podcast is released. Uh, in which case, um, tweet us and we'll tell you what we think about it. We'll probably like it. Um, our final piece of news, eh, not quite news. I just wanted to um, briefly mention Black Lightning, which has debuted on the CW in the US. Um, and to my surprise, is on um, Netflix in the UK. I was wonder- I was thinking this was going to be one of those shows that I was just going to have to wait until it turned up, you know, at some point way down the line. But um, evidently, Sky didn't, feel desperate enough to get it alongside <laughs> all of the other CW shows that they had um, or Netflix bid a little bit more money but it's but it's on Netflix and I watched the first episode um, and I think it's really good you guys and I'd recommend that you all check it out it has um, an interesting um, it has an interesting concept behind it and I think like inevitably it's going to get compa- compared to Luke Cage um, it's it's going to be a different type of show because this is a CW show that's going to be probably a lot more episodic and um have you know kind of some of the structural similarities with stuff like like the Flash and Arrow um, and Supergirl, but it's um it, it's kind of got like similarities to Luke Cage in that obviously it has a black superhero who is kind of. Uh, reluctantly taking on his superhero mantle because he has some kind of vested interest in his community and making his community safer because uh, he cares for the people that live in that community. Um, and it's it it does some really interesting stuff with race, even in the first in in the first episode, with kind of like a superhero who it really matters that he keeps his secret identity secret because. He's a black guy, and a black guy who goes out and fights crime on the streets is a vigilante rather than a superhero. And the effects for him would be pretty dire if his if his true identity came out. Um, Cress Williams is in the lead role. Um, he's he, I, I thought he was really impressive in the first episode. Like he, by day, he's a school principal, um, and he's kind of nearly fifty, so he's got two daughters to like almost. Uh, adult daughters in the show as well there's a little tease that uh one of them might have superhero powers as well um and it it had all of this going on whilst having a little bit of the cheesy cw elements like the costumes a little like it's adorably naff um and yeah i i think i'm in after like it's been it's been a while since a new superhero tv show has turned up and that I've actually got invested in watching it. Like I didn't, I didn't end up watching The Gifted. I didn't watch Inhumans. Um, I didn't watch Punisher. I kind of like cried by the time that the Defenders was over because of how much of my time it had sapped. Um, it, it honestly has been a while since any of these superhero movie uh, TV shows has 
kind of got me invested in keeping watching. So um, I just want, uh, the tick is probably the last one actually, which feels very different to everything else that's going on. So I just thought I would I would take a moment to mention it and uh, recommend it to any of our listeners. And uh, hmm. yeah. If you're in the UK, it's going up on Netflix. You all have Netflix accounts. And if you don't, your dad's got one and he gives you his password. So <laughs> you can watch Black Lightning. Well, at least watch the first episode. Um, it's got the Cunningham guarantee. Have I convinced either of you guys? I'd say no. Just, just only because I uh, The Tick is the only superhero TV show I've watched in years. Since maybe the first season of Daredevil. Um, and there are other TV shows that I m- mean to watch that... Yeah, I'm not even getting to now. So it's like another one to the past. I would definitely watch The Tick before I watch Black Lightning. (laughs) Yeah, where does it it come in the Mr. Robot Tick league tables? (laughs) Mr. Robot is better than Mr. Robot. Riverdale first, then Mr. Robot. Then (laughs) uh, I'll probably finish off, go back to Supergirl maybe, before Black Lightning. I'd watch The Flash before Black Lightning, to be honest. But you should watch Black Lightning, I'm telling you it's good. Okay. It's promising, at least. Mike, the first season of Daredevil happened so long ago that we were still working together at that point. Was that, was that really true? Oh my god, wow, okay. Um, and uh, I remember it was when there was the big power cut in um, in London right. that kind of shut our office down for a week. <laughs> and it, sh- it shut our office down on the day that Daredevil came out, so I may have watched a lot of Daredevil while sat on my laptop on that day. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That's true because you that you were still in London, weren't you? You just started the podcast, and that's when you tried to get Charlie Thingy. Yeah, we got you, you did into him, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, we got we we went to the junket and spoke to to Charlie Cox. He yeah. was he was a very nice man. <laughs> I'm happy who does to... who, who does horrible things to people in the TV show. I just leave their eyes alone, Charlie. <laughs> <sighs> okay, uh, well, that's all the comic book, movie, and TV news uh, for this week. Um, We'll take a quick break now while you listen to the trailer um, for the movie we're about to discuss, and then we'll be back with our spoiler-filled discussion of Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Now for our next item, the royal crown of Beth Mora, a piece from a long-lost culture. Lost? Not at all. Very much alive. And I am here to reclaim what is rightfully mine. Call security! When our world is threatened... I have returned to wage war and reclaim our land. My forces beyond our understanding. Our government turns to an elite top-secret organization. We're moving out. We had over 70 guests reported. We have no survivors. Same story here, babe. Don't call me babe. Hey, I said, hey. Red, we have company. My father died to uphold the truce with your world. I will call upon the help of all the children of the earth. The good 
the bat. Give it up, Nasty. We can see it. See me? How? How do you see me? And the worst. The Golden Army, the unstoppable force. Oh, crap. Kill them. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Afraid of me. You have more in common with us than with them, demon. Excuse me. Make the choice. You woke up the baby. Okay, so that was the trailer for Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. Um so yeah, ten years old this year. Um we are you know, it felt like a good time to discuss it, as we said, with um the Sexy Abe Sapien spin-off coming to cinemas and being nominated <laughs> for Oscars. Um with the new Hellboy reboot in the works. Um and the fact that Mike we could bring you back to talk about Hellboy for the second time. Um and I'm, this... I'm like the Ron Perlman of uh Cinematic Universe. Yeah. We, <laughs> you we... need me or Hellboy doesn't work. Well well, we bring you for these for these two. When the reboot comes in, we're gonna find someone who's like you uh, but, <laughs> but a kind of like a younger like hit with the kids model ideally yeah. some someone who's someone who's in some streaming series a huge netflix show yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but for now we can get you to talk about hellboy 2 um was i right in speculating on the last podcast that you hadn't seen this movie before oh i hadn't seen this no it'd been on the list for a long time um, I was trying to th- remember why I hadn't watched it. I think it came out that summer after I finished university, so I wasn't going to the cinema very, very often. Um, and then, yeah, it just never caught up with it. So, yeah, yeah it was an interesting... I, I think I said this when we did the first Hellboy film, but it's fascinating to watch these films, and I can now understand all of the sort of nerd rage little flutters that Seb and James have, because this is a series that... I've read a lot more of before coming to it and seeing a completely different version on screen. I'm very sad you had to feel that way. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's nothing as egregious as, uh, as as some of the things you talk about in this podcast, but it was interesting to see that kind yeah, of brewing in me. It's nothing like the thing not having an eyebrow cut crease or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first time on this podcast where I was like, am I in too deep? <laughs> 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 Um, so so is this is this egregious to you mike or is it like okay this is a director giving his take on something that i like and it's different but not in a bad way i'd say having rewatched batman returns over christmas this is very much a batman returns type thing where the first you know the first film in the series a filmmaker was trying some things but was hewing quite a bit more closely to the uh, source material, and then for the sequel, he comes back and just you know lets loose. And there's yeah. just something as as basic as um, elves are not really Hellboy in my in, in my mind. It's fan- that's that sort of high fantasy, and Hellboy's much more about folklore, horror, gothic type settings. Yeah. Um, so immediately, if you want to say egregious, that's something there that uh, is not really the Hellboy that I I recognise. 
But also what's fascinating watching this now as a sort of time capsule, as we've said, of a particular point in Guillermo del Toro's career. And I've loved every film he's made since this that I've seen as they've been coming out. And he's had a very rocky career and over mm. those years. Um, in some ways, kind of using Hellboy 2 as a, as, a, as a jumping off point where he could have become a much more mainstream filmmaker, a much more recognised filmmaker, but always seemed to uh, lose the you know, the opportunity as films fell through or they got somebody else. So it's fascinating to watch that now from two directions, as a fan of Guillermo del Toro and as a fan of Hellboy and seeing it, you know, as both those things. It's fascinating. I kind of watched this movie and, um, James, I'll come to you in a sec because I'm not sure how <laughs> how much of del Toro's kind of back catalogue you've seen. Um, I watched this movie and kind of thought, Oh god, this almost feels like the the like the convergence point of all things Del Toro. So mm. I, I have to admit, I haven't seen Crimson Peak, um, right? But it's on Netflix and it's in my queue, so maybe I need to, maybe I need to do what you've done, uh, Mike, which is get on, invited on a podcast to talk about it, and then, I, <laughs> then I'll catch up. Um, but like, it feels like so. Yeah, there there are like there are elements of the original Hellboy in here, but then it's mixed with kind of like. There was even stuff in here that was reminding me of Mimic. There was mm. you, you could feel the you could feel the Pan's Labyrinth influence with some of the more bizarre creatures that they go to visit. Um, you know, there's there's one scene that feels like it it it's come out of the kaiju movie, um, mm. and then even of like his his movies that he was going to make but didn't. You know, so you've got the elves in there, and the the fantasy stuff very much feels like what he almost explored with the Hobbit. Yeah, um, exactly. which is what which is what ultimately led to him having a five year gap mm-hmm. after making this film until he returned with Pacific Rim, um, and even like at, at the Mountains of Madness, which you know his big um, Lovecraft movie that he was trying to get off the ground. Um, feel it, it, you you can find kind of see these all of these little influences in there, um, and ultimately I think it it makes for a movie that. It's it's telling a story. The story never feels that important, and what does feel more important is just watching Del Toro constructs like sequence after sequence with some really fantastic art design, and just seeing what kind of fun he can have with it. Because I don't think I really ever care about whether Luke Goss is gonna make the crown <laughs> come together, and then mm-hmm. the clockwork people will come and. It never really feels like the world's at stake. And actually it feels like Del Toro, he's so confident that at this point that like, oh yeah, they've made me come back for Hellboy 2. So I'm going to get to make the trilogy. Um, yeah. I, I'm just going to, I'm going to hint at some stuff with this character and then I'll come back and tell the story I want to tell in the third one. And for now, I'll just kind of create the pictures that I want to create. Yeah, I, I quite like all of those sort of autoristic threads are there I, I you know the fact that hellboy is explicitly watching bride of frankenstein in one scene <laughs> yeah and that's something that he comes back to time and again uh this sort of um mishmash of a sort of nostalgic past in the present so the fact that hellboy is listening to 1950s and 60s pop um you know whilst in this very sort of at times quite steampunky clockwork futuristic world um but then also um you know as as we've said, this idea that the monster at the heart of it, all the monsters are given an emotional 
core in this film. Almost yeah. too, you know. This, I don't think we need two romantic threads uh, for the, the two main monster characters. The fact that Abe Sapien and, and Hellboy both have love interests or try to wrestle with the fact that they're monsters, but also have a heart and have emotions. Um, but clearly, that's something that Guillermo del Toro cares about quite strongly and has explored since in maybe mm. more elegant ways. But it's there. So you saw this on release, did you, Joe? I saw this, Mike, at Film 4 Summer Screen. <laughs> oh, with, uh, did they have, a, with John Hurt was there, was he? John Hurt turned up, yeah. Um, and <laughs> Just I, for the I, start of the film, though. And I think yeah. Anna, Anna Walton, who plays the, the, the princess, was there as well, Mala. if memory serves. Um because I went, I went for three days back to back, and I think it was Hellboy Two was the opening movie, and then I saw a double bill of Pan's Labyrinth and The Exorcist, where wow. The Exorcist I think began on the stroke of midnight or something like that. It was something insane. It started very late, um, and uh, I also saw Brokeback Mountain. Um, so it was <laughs> a good year. Yeah, it was a it was a, good, a great world. Just and they were three nights back to back, which was yeah incredible. Um, so yeah, I saw it then, and at the time, had like not really liked the first Hellboy movie, and I did, mm. I did like it as when we went back and revisited for the podcast. But I was kind of like, I was there for the other ones, and I just thought, like, oh well, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll see this new one because I liked Pan's Labyrinth, and that was the movie that I was seeing the day after. Sure, mm. I'll see his new film, um, and. I, I kind of really, really liked this when it when it came out. I remember being completely stunned by how much I liked it, and I think going back, I didn't I didn't like it to the same extent because I think a lot of what to like about this film is kind of the delight in seeing some of the things that Del Toro has created, some of the monsters and some of the some of the little surprises um, and little moments that we'll that we'll get to during the discussion. But mm. plot wise. Once you know that this movie isn't really going anywhere, I mean, like yeah. the final showdown of this movie kind kind of remi- reminded me of the Phantom, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is um, a- another film that's on film four all the time. Um, hey, <laughs> <laughs> I quite like the Phantom in a in a kitschy way. It's got Treat Williams in it. Um, yeah, I'm uh, as I'm saying all this, I'm acutely aware that James. You saw this movie as well. What did you think? <laughs> what What are your thoughts on Hellboy Two? Your, your kind of uh, I think general I'm, thoughts. I think I'm around the same point as you guys, which is that I kind of really enjoyed the visuals and thought it was very inventive, but that the plot didn't really go to the places it needed to to keep me entertained. Like I, you know, I didn't feel like anything was actually under threat. Hmm. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to really matter to Hellboy either, does it? You know, well, like no, it's... that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Like, there's a bit where he looks like he's in mortal danger, but even then, he's kind of passed out and doesn't seem that worried by it. And like, he doesn't even know at that point that he's got children, so it's not like he feels any personal like, oh, I have to stay alive. Stakes other than the standard ones. Like, it just I don't know. It felt like. Del Toro was kind of having fun with a big budget, but maybe not anything else. I it, I think it's almost got like it's it's got a fairy tale vibe because it's this it's the story that's been told to Hellboy as a kid, mm-hmm. which I mean I don't know about you guys it was that it was 
I kind of felt the double pang watching that scene of, oh, John Hurt's here. Uh, he died in the first movie, but now he's back, and then like, and then he's gone again, and then yeah, that kind of double reminder of just yeah, yeah, we don't get to see any new John Hurt movies anymore. Because <laughs> um, he's he's one of those actors, isn't he? That whenever he turns up in something, you're, you're straight away you're paying more attention to that scene, um, <laughs> which and is his... good because that first scene was kind of a slog. Yeah, especially with teenage Hellboy. Yeah, I yeah. hope. I hope Teen mm. Groot isn't as much of a uh, drag. <laughs> that was the thing like, that, rem- was that reminded me of Thor, which is like, okay, we've got a story to get through, but first we need to establish a bunch of ground rules before the story will work. So strap in. We've got 10, 15 minutes, then the film can start. Well, because you remind, you, you, you remind sorry, me even of, uh, of Justice League. You know, the fact that here, you, know, <laughs> you, you thought you knew who all these characters were and what the world was, but here's another whole fantasy layer on top of it all and has, let's have some flashbacks to something being broken up and spread around the world and and don't worry about where they've been for the rest of you know the history of humanity it doesn't matter <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> it's and it's it's just i think that that the whole plot with the elves just feels like it's and and it does become the whole plot but it does feel like it kind of exists on a secondary nature to everything else that's going on. It's like uh, Del Toro wants to, wants to do it for the, for the visuals he can create and to put some fancy elements in fancy elements into there. But what he really cares about is his little character moments with the, with the three key players from the first movie. He's put some new comic relief around them. (laughs) And, And really all that's, all that's happening with it because because the fact that they tell you the story and then they turn up and then they do their bit in the modern day and i don't think it's until after that is it that we actually see hellboy for the first mm-hmm. time so you've got to got these two extended sequences at the start that set up the elves just to kind of like set, no so they are part of this world and then that's what's going on and ultimately it will lead to a showdown but it's so i said it it kind of feels like Del Toro's more concerned about what he's going to be doing in part three. Yeah, drop, dropping things like, as, as James said, that, you know, this, this thread that Liz is pregnant with twins and it's a, it's a secret throughout half the movie and is, is dropped later on, Hellboy finds out and so on. To then leave that to be in the next film and never to be picked up, as, as we now know, is kind of a, a weird thing. Surely to the arc for Hellboy... Could it could at least have had a payoff at the end of this film? Maybe well, the arc for Hellboy here is that you know. Then why do you fight for the humans? Why why do you battle so much to be part of this world? They're never going to love you. They're that they're, they're always going to fear you. And you you kind of that's what I kind of I got the impression that the third film was going to lead to maybe some kind of evil hellboy or hell, hellboy kind of giving into that before fighting back or some yeah something along those lines but it is the arc through this movie is hellboy kind of like being shown these things and you see him like at, at times you see him what he thinks about not shaving down the horns anymore at one point and hmm. he definitely considers not killing the big the big tree forest god yeah yeah but by the time you get to the end of the movie it's just like yeah, we'll we'll consider that next time. Well, also, and I just that, I just think it's a thread. shame. There's that whole thread as well of like, you know, Liz wondering is he a good father? Is he a good romantic partner? And 
even then it feels like he doesn't actually change for that to that doubt to go away it's just mm. he almost dies and she goes oh fuck no yeah yeah and, and like, you only ever really see them having a fight or being after you know, after just having a fight a fight so you don't know why they're together apart from the fact that the film just thinks <laughs> yeah they were together at the end of the last film and then Abe Sapien, Abe Sapien in the movie ends up pulling a big old Danny Rand moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> basically, like, being a bit of a cock because he's madly in love with this woman who is kind mm. of then just, like, then she dies at the end of the movie because ultimately she doesn't really matter. And so you kind of... So, but, and, and you don't really see Abe dealing with it either. No, it just it feels like they that he just wanted to add, as I said, another romantic thread for to humanize a a, a tragic, monstrous figure. And this is something that, having seen this film, this is a film that's kind of touted as one of the the. It's like a cult comic book movie. It's the one that the cool person will chime in and say, "Well, my favorite comic book movie is actually Hellboy 2. <laughs> Um and they'll never make the third one, so it's even more tragic. But I just feel that two movies into a trilogy that, that there was just certain heavy lifting just hadn't been done, really. So do you, did, did you two feel, watching it now, that you really wanted the third one or felt that we'd been you know robbed of a third one? <laughs> no, I, mean, I just felt frustrated that the movie had, hadn't bothered to do the stuff in this movie because it assumed that it was going to get to do it next I time. was going to say, like, I, wanted, I want to see a third one because I like uh, Ron Perlman's Hellboy. Yeah. And I like Guillermo del Toro. And it feels like there was a better story that he was waiting to tell. And that makes me go, oh, I wish they'd done three so we could have seen the story that he actually wanted to do. Not this yeah, stopgap yeah. thing. Or I wish that he'd done three Well, that's two. the thing. I wish he'd just done that story instead of putting it off. Like, it's such a strange choice. It's so interesting you know, with you two you know, listening to the episode about Dark Knight, kind of revisiting Dark Knight and seeing how self-contained that is. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that you know now we can look at it, look back at it as a trilogy or whatever. But the fact that that's two films in, and Christopher Nolan clearly told the story he wanted to tell with that film. Yeah. To then have a film where Guillermo del Toro was clearly given a lot of free reign in terms of the design and general structure of the film to do whatever he wanted, you know, spectacle-wise. But then to just leave hints to say, come back next time for the real story. Is is a bit you know, was was disappointing for me, and even though I was you know as I was saying, there's all this sort of strange emotions I was feeling about how it wasn't my Hellboy, so to speak. <laughs> I was mainly frustrated because it wasn't it didn't really feel like it was doing much on its own terms, even. Yeah, I, having said that, I think the reason why the, the kind of the hipsters will say this is their favorite, you know, comic book movie is because. Guillermo del Toro does kind of visually deliver um, yeah. some like incredibly fun stuff at, at various points throughout this movie. You know, there's there's so many kind of weird and wonderful creatures in this film that you mm. you can kind of you can almost kind of forget about some of them. Like I, I could think about some of my favorites and then think, oh, but actually, like it's pretty cool when they. Um, when they go to uh, the giant's causeway at the end, and like hmm. that, that giant rock monster like emerges <laughs> from the ground to kind of let them in, and then just and then. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just lays back down again. Like just, and that's, that's just a little moment that must have cost a lot of money that looks incredible <laughs> and doesn't really further the plot. It's just Guillermo del Toro going, this looks great. <laughs> and it's something yeah. that, because it's del Toro, no one, no one else is really doing Guillermo del Toro visuals. So it's something mm. that you could only really get in this film. So I'm still like, I still kind of like the film. I'm still glad it exists despite all yeah, of yeah, the other frustrations. Yeah, yeah I, I, I love that central spectacle, spectacular action sequence with you know, the pseudo kaiju thing with the, mm. the forest, the forest god, where you know, especially the bit where Hellboy's you know, clown bring up the hotel sign as each letter's being like, you know, <laughs> you know smashed away, and he's carrying the baby, and carrying the baby, carrying a very yeah. unconvincing baby. <laughs> yeah true but um that yeah that's, that's at least that one is a baby that... i guess <laughs> true yeah <laughs> and that, that's something that even you know pacific rim is a very different sort of action spe- spectacle movie it's something that guillermo del toro hasn't done since a sort of grounded fantasy action and it is really fun to see him apply his you know his visionary streak to something like that yeah, um, and the way that I think what he does well in this film is have hero moments that are still funny and strange. Uh, we we talk about other films that maybe have undercut hero moments, you know, in a bad way. Maybe films that can't have that, you know, splash page moment. But in this, Hellboy has like two or three of them, you know, where, where he's there posing <laughs> with his gun or or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that also helps that Ron Perlman really does look the part. <laughs> and that's and that's the thing that carries this movie because Ron Perlman is just really really great as Hellboy. I, I, we talked about this a lot in the first film. It's it's kind of delightful throughout the first film that he's a little bit of a you know he's kind of like a mopey teenager. Like who's just annoyed that he's not getting his own way. And what I like in this film is that he's like He's the extension of that is that now he's he's becoming, if anything, a little bit more rebellious 
but whilst he's also trying to traverse this first relationship. So he's like, well, I really like her, but she's, you know, she's making me be, she's trying to make me be good and like grow up and stuff. Yeah. I I would say Ron Perlman's performance is as good as Selma Blair's is bad. Oh, that's such a shame though. I really like Selma Blair. She just doesn't give a fuck in this film though, does she? I know, which makes it so strange. Something that, even though I, I I probably do like this film overall, I also don't think that it's the be all and end all for Hellboy. So I think that the response to this reboot news, where everyone's coming out saying, "Oh, it's such a shame," yeah, and Selma Blair did that as well, where she's like, "Oh, it's you know, such a shame that we won't be able to make our film with Guillermo." And I think, yeah, but you weren't that committed, seemingly, <laughs> to this last one. Yeah, you barely turned up to this one. Like, what was going on? So, there's a moment in this film where she says, "Oh, I need to go off by myself for a bit and do some thinking." And at that point, I was like, "Oh yeah, she's not in the rest of the movie, is she?" But no, she. But no, she is. She like, meant she's going to her room. But I mean, I I can kind of understand why she's not that invested too, because like, it's not like the character gets to do an awful lot. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, yeah, but she, she she's the one that suffers. Liz is the one that suffers um, in in. When you know they add a few more characters and they well, fill out Abe Sapien a bit. I think the one who really suffers is Agent Myers, freezing his tits off in Alaska. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the right should choice. We, should we talk about that? Should we talk about the restructuring of the team? Uh, we've already talked about the start of the movie and the the kind of the weird, um, the weird annoying teenage Hellboy, and then mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro throws in some animation for that for that sequence as well, um, which is it's okay. It's kind of kind of cool. Not spectacular compared to some of the other stuff. Uh, but yeah, when we're reintroduced to the team, so obviously Abe Sapien's still around, this mm-hmm. time being voced and performed by uh, <laughs> Doug, Doug Jones. Jones. Of Star Trek yep. Discovery. Yeah, right. So this, this, is the question, this is the question I was going to ask, James. Watching this in 2018, while new episodes of Star Trek Discovery are coming out, we did you like close your eyes and go, oh, it's Mr. Saru? I didn't even close my eyes. Saru. I was just like, oh, it's Saru. <laughs> it's Saru, because it's the same voice. Um, and I mean, like, it's great because I really like Saru and I really like <laughs> Abe Sapien. Um, and then there was a moment where I was like to myself, I was like, do you know what? Abe Sapien's a little bit like Niles Crane, isn't he? And I was like, oh no, because shit, because he did the <laughs> he did yeah. the voice in the first film. And it's remarkable how this is Doug Jones doing a voice that is identical to the one he's doing in a Star Trek show ten years later, but is also clearly meant to be aping <laughs> what what um, David Hyde Pierce did in a movie three years earlier. It's, it's really strange. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But, yeah, I was I was expecting it to be different uh, because um, some of the reviews do say that oh it, it suffers a little bit because of, you know losing David Hyde Pierce, but it's a really good impression. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think, think it, it does suffer either. Like I, I don't know if it is the Star Trek Discovery effect, but I was just like, yeah, this is a good performance by a reasonable actor. Like it wasn't, I wasn't pining for David Hyde Pierce to come back. If anything. Exactly, yeah. When I watched the first one, I was really awkward about the fact that they had overdubbed him at the studio's insistence with David Hyde Pierce. Right, Mike. Is there a, is a, as the person who's seen The Shape of Water? Is there any similarities beyond the fact that it's a fishman performed by Doug Jones? It's 
No, not really. It it is a bit of a jump, but it's just it's it's interesting that that's what he went for. It's a bit sort of uh, creature of Black Lagoon, uh, but it's more what the 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 ties between the two are, are just more this sense of melancholy and romance and fantasy in these characters and the nature of the monster and put a monster with human potentially human features and emotions uh no it's not it's not just abe sapien but it's clearly something that working with abe sapien in this film has lodged something in his brain clearly yeah um that's come up later it's not you know the, the shiznit do their um oscar movie <laughs> posters every year and for shape of water they retitled it as abe sapien slash fiction which is very funny and uh, but um it's not exactly what it is you'll see when it comes out um in a couple of weeks I do I do really like Doug Jones. He's someone that uh, I mean a- any time he's in something and, and most of the time he's he is, you know, buried beneath layers of latex, but um the reason he keeps coming back is cuz he's one of the best and mm. you know, he he's the uh he's the body performer for Silver Surfer, which is a movie that Oh, is he? Yeah, who knows at some point this year even we might get to that movie. Um <sighs> And like he's he's the lead gentleman in Hush, the yep. the Buffy episode, of course. Um, you know, alongside all the all the other stuff that he's done for Del Toro, we talked about uh, Star Trek, and just like, yeah, he's one of those guys that whenever he turns up, like I I can't remember there was some it was the TV show that he was in a couple of years ago, and it wasn't fantastic, but I had to cover it for a website or something, so I like watched it, and and I think. Um, then interviewed him about it. Uh, did a phone interview with him, um, and it was like uh, Falling Skies. That was the one. The the one that oh, yeah. Steven Spielberg technically exec produced. <laughs> I'm sure never got anywhere near the set. But he kind of came in as a new character at the start of like season three or something. So I kind of like went in cold, watched the back end of season two at the start of season three, and I was like, oh yeah, you can see like a demonstrable improvement when he turns up. And I'm not sure it's even that he's a fantastic actor i think he just knows he just knows his way around these like suit suits in the same way that you know circus knows his way around performance mm-hmm. ca- capture that i don't think andy circus is the best actor in the world but when you get him doing that he's better than anyone else doing it um yeah and i and, and i think he's a delight here really um yeah not not so sold on the uh on the romance what did you guys think like did it, it sort of we, came out of nowhere, didn't it? And then went nowhere. Exactly. And to in 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 the comics, he's not as much of a sort of bumbling, Niles-like idiot in the way that he is in, in the not idiots, but you know, uh, you know, naive in the ways of love. He's he's a bit more of a traditional hero at times, in 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 particular the, the his own series in the BPRD comics. So that's probably one of the areas where the film is going off on its own well, tangent. I seem, to, I seem to remember in the first movie that he is kind of like a lot more confident and he's a competent, mm-hmm. sorry, and he's the one yeah. that's kind of like at times embarrassing Hellboy, that Hellboy's clearly so much more strong and powerful, but it's it's Abe Sapien who's actually, you know, good at the stuff. Exactly. They make him into more of a misfit in this, a bit more, you know, closer to Hellboy in in, 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 yeah, in, in that sense of you know, being an outsider. Yeah. And then they bring in Johan Krauss as another yeah. uh, team member <laughs> to sort of try and balance it out. And and that that's one that's that's not I don't think that holds up very well at all, that character or characterization. 
What did you guys think of that? I mean, it's That's Seth MacFarlane doing the voice, isn't it? He's like, he was the one thing in the film that made me like properly laugh. Oh, really? Like, I really, I thought it was great fun. I'm oh, not, wow. not going to lie, I retroactively liked him less as soon as I read that it was <laughs> Seth MacFarlane yeah, voicing him. <laughs> it's like a, a movie that I otherwise like quite enjoyed last year, but as soon as Seth MacFarlane showed up in Logan Lucky, I was like, oh, fuck this movie. Why, <laughs> why are they doing this? Like he's just I I I find him um a a difficult presence in anything and it did kind of make me like the character less. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't know before I watched the film. Put it that way. I I, I would say my I don't think he's I, I don't think he's terrible. Um, mm-hmm. but he feels kind of like just a thing that has been stuck on top. I can understand because we talked about in the first film whether or not Agent Myers needed to be there. Whether mm-hmm. we needed this kind of like o- audience surrogate character being brought in, and obviously <laughs> like he he plays kind of like love rival to Hellboy in that movie as well to an extent. But I remember us watching it back and going, actually, in retrospect, while it was one of the things that people made fun of like in the movie and not and didn't really like, I thought he was all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think ultimately that's where I come out with. Uh, I've forgotten his name already. Johan Kraus. Johan Kraus. He's <laughs> that was I think the, he's... that's the joke that really made me laugh. Where he was like SS, and he was like, "Of course." <laughs> <laughs> Dear, I like I, I I like the idea of the character that there is uh you know ectoplasm in a suit and that he can yeah yeah he can escape and do all that kind of stuff. But it's it's just another one of those things that I'm like visually I really like this thing about this movie. Overall, eh. I did. I, I did also. I did find it a bit weird that he walks in, and I was like, for a second, I was like, wait, is that the villain from the first movie? <laughs> oh yeah, I think that was something Guillermo del Toro mentioned in an interview that he wanted to, in the third one, tease that they were related. So the, right. the you know the clockwork Nazi is that the one you're talking about from the first film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that they were in some way related. But that's something nothing we'll never see. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, but, but he's interesting. He's he's qu- quite an important character in BPRD. Oh, really? Um, and plays a very integral. He's kind of like the solid rock at the core of that team, and he's more sort of avuncular and supportive as opposed to being an antagonistic, kind of stick in the mud character that's introduced. So, Mike, and, the the BPRD um, mm-hmm. in in the comics. Because I I just read like solo Hellboy stuff. Like, is there yeah. a is there a like a typical team? Is it is it yeah? Is Liz around? Is Abe Sapien around? Is this guy around? Well, so quite early. Well, not quite early, but a few volumes in the Hellboy series where you have had the BPRD introduced. Hellboy quits and goes off on his own adventures to find his destiny and figure out who he is. And then that's when Mignola spins off and started the BPRD series separately. And that's where you have you have Liz Sherman and Johann Krauss um, and Abe Sapien. But then you also have Kate Corrigan, who's a human character, who I'm surprised they don't have... Is she related to Mark? <laughs> She's, no, not, not Mark's sister. Damn it. <laughs> not tickety-boo, no. Um, they, but she, I'm surprised they don't have her in any form in the... Um, in the films, because in the comics, she's that sort of human surrogate all the way through. Right, and they also okay. have a, a character who's called Roger, who's a um, like a homunculus kind of man made out of clay that um, is is animated into a human and 
is a really fascinating character in the way that he relates to other characters and develops a, a sense of humanity throughout the series. And I think Del Toro was toying with with including him in some way, but didn't at all. Mm. So there, there's like that central sort of crew of four or five, and then Ben Daimio turn, comes up later on, who's going to be in the new film. Um, oh, so that's the uh, Daniel Day Kim character recast yes. from Ed Screen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I forgot uh, that Daniel Day Kim was going to be in that movie. I'm excited about it again now. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I always like to see Jin in things. Yeah. But that's sort of the core early on in the BPRD. Okay. Um, and only, and, but then in terms of the characterizations, none of them are quite right. None of them track really to the film. Right. And, and likewise the character relationships. Because that's something that they have in this, which is Jeffrey Tambor's back and he's, he's kind of, you know, uh, Superintendent Chalmers <laughs> waving his finger in every scene, isn't he? It's weird. I, I like. I, it's rare that I don't find Jeffrey Tambor really funny, and in this one, I'm not sure. I don't know whether like the past few months have coloured things to me slightly, but I, I mm. just didn't. I didn't really vibe with that kind of s- strain of humour. Again, it kind of felt like: is there any need for him in this team? In this movie, have we not done that bit? And especially when Hellboy does his does his coming out to the public moment, it kind of feels like, and and they bring in Kraus, it feels like, oh, okay, I think, I think you could not be in this movie now, and it wouldn't it wouldn't mm. affect things dreadfully. <clears throat> yeah, did it? Did either of you miss Agent Myers? <laughs> <laughs> not not especially. Not especially. It, it, it felt like you know the the, the film had enough. Yeah. Characters and plot threads. Well, like to, that, to go that story on, been done right. So, yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Fine, fine without him and the gag about where he is, I thought was funny. <laughs> so that's fine. Um, and then uh, I guess the the characters that we haven't really spoken about are the villain. Um, yeah. So we got Prince Noir de Silverlance and <laughs> Princess Nuala. Uh, and Nuada is played by Luke Goss, and for all of how much I don't really think that the villain side of things is very interesting in this movie, I quite like the performance. Me too. I think he's great. Yeah. Considering he's a former one-hit wonder you know, from, from the 80s. He is sort yeah. of doing uh, his Luke Goss, like, noughties performance though, isn't he? Where he turns up as a guy with long white hair and does some martial arts. Oh, is he in other things doing that? Is he? I, I, is he like that in Blade Two? I I, I was trying. Yeah, II. I was. I was trying to remember him in Blade Two, and I I was I was struggling. Uh, that's a movie that it's been so long since I've watched. Um, but yeah, we will we will find out when we revisit it on the podcast, <laughs> which is another episode, listeners, which I promise you we'll have a guest for. <laughs> Especially after how the first one went down. Um, uh, if, if if you slot that performance into a Lord of the Rings film or a, a, another fantasy action film, I mean that can go toe to toe with most other, or even ha- have him toe to toe with a villain in a more fantasy tinged Marvel movie like I Thor: did, The Dark World. I did yeah. get kind of Thor vibes off those villains. I, do you know what I? I like the I like the design, unsurprisingly, because I like the design of almost everything in this film. Mm. Um, 
And I, I think the performance is strong and where, where it really hits home is in that final sequence after he's been, um, after, after he's been, well, I was going to say after he's been stabbed, but after his sister has stabbed himself, herself, which has killed mm. him. And, mm. and you kind of get him finally talking with, uh, rather than in just evil villain, no, we must fight and defeat the humans. You get a little bit of nuance to him finally, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, if this had been the version of the character that we'd have seen all the way through the film, I mean, that, I think I would have been a lot with more the forest where he's saying like, if you kill this, is you know, it's the last one, it's gone. Yeah, that was an interesting piece of nuance, and I think they navigated that quite well, but they then didn't expand the idea. Because like that, yeah. that should be Hellboy thinking like, actually, what is all this for? Maybe he's mm-hmm. right, but it never goes that far. Yeah, no, I totally. Well, and and again, I think that comes back to that kind of that Del Toro thinking. I'm going to bed all this in for the character <laughs> of Hellboy in this movie, but yeah. I've I've not got any actual actual interest in finishing <laughs> it. Weirdly, there's there's a there's a lot of stuff on the Wikipedia page about. Um, like uh, this, the cancelled spin-off that they were going to do to the, for this film. Yeah, about the prince. Like what? Yeah, about <laughs> Prince Noada. Which, as much as I like it, and like I do remember hearing like Silverland thrown around as like a word that was connected to Hellboy. It was only like on looking on the Wikipedia that I realised. Oh, his name is Prince Noada Silverlands. Fine, <laughs> but yeah, they were gonna they were gonna do like a a, a spin-off with. Noada and Agent Myers would have maybe been returning. <laughs> Doug, Doug Jones would have been in it as Abe Sapien and the Angel of Death. Um, and like this film was still kind of in active development in 2015. Like, how did that, that happen? That's just crazy, isn't it? That just shows where there's a there's a property that no one knows what to do with, and they're <laughs> yeah. just throwing ideas around. <clears throat> it's stable. <laughs> <laughs> It it feels like Hollywood really wants to make Hellboy happen, like because uh, it, it it I don't know to me to me Mike it's not something that like other than like this character is very visually distinctive and as soon as you see mm. Hellboy you know it's Hellboy but it's not like the wider culture has this huge affection for the character or it's not as if like the comics were really well known outside of a certain sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's strange to me. Maybe it just made enough money, but not so much money that it's like, well, we we'll do it again, but we'll do it different. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit surprised that they're trying to make it happen. And around here, you also had so many ancillary media kind of tie-ins, like video games and animated films as well. It's not really what what I love about Hellboy is what makes it a comic, which is the fact that stories can be of varying lengths, and you can have tie-ins and crossovers and spin-offs and and so on. But I guess maybe that's just Mike Mignola has fans in certain high places or because yet yeah, the, the distinctive hook of the main character and the fact that it's a ready-made mythos means that people come back time and again. I'd be really fascinated to see what this next film is like because you know Neil Marshall has formed both as a horror filmmaker but also as a large-scale fantasy mm-hmm. TV director. So you wouldn't be do... surprised if the budget of one of those Game of Thrones episodes was actually, you know, comparable <laughs> to what he's getting for Hellboy. Well, exactly. But 
So I think either of those two versions of Neil Marshall could do a really good job of a Hellboy. And I, I keep coming back to talking about Crimson Peak and, and Shave of Water, and I think they are actually closer to some of my favourite, in tone and, and in scope, closer to my favourite Hellboy stories. Because there are, you know, most traditional conventional Hellboy stories are him setting up some sort of mythological beast or artefact or whatever, and then he punches it really hard at the end, <laughs> and that's the end of the story. Um, but sometimes there are ones where he just goes and there's a strange bit of folklore or a, or a fairy tale or, a, or, or, or something, and he's just a witness or a bystander to a sad, melancholy story or a scary story, which means it's a perfect launch pad for an anthology or or a, or a series in that regard. That's it. That's, that. that's the thing that I'm the most surprised about is that they're mm. doing it again as a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It should be a Tales from the Crypt style anthology series. Really. I'm because I think that's what Mike Mignola is inspired by in the way that he's structured the the Mignola verse. Is he's inspired by the the you know, the vault of horror Tales from the Crypt anthology books of, of way back when. And yeah, it would be a great T V series. I, I you know, I wouldn't be surprised if ten or fifteen years from now we we actually get it. Because the way mm. that the way that streaming video, I think, if I had to predict the way that streaming video is going to change over the next decade, is that it's going to become more and more segmented. So you're going to subscribe to your horror service, or you're going to subscribe to your fantasy service, or you are just going to go for all your Disney, or you're going to go for all your superhero stuff. And like different different services will cater to different things. If only mm. David um, Harbour has an existing relationship with a streaming service. <laughs> God, yeah. Well, maybe I Netflix's just... horror imprint that they set up <laughs> in in the twenty twenties will will end up yeah getting its getting its elbow in the BPRD series. I do wonder as well whether when you talk about how hard it's being pushed, it is the only major franchise that Dark Horse have really, um, and you know by the year they're losing some of their major <laughs> license times. They've lost so they've all the Star Wars books. They've lost Star Wars. They've, if the Fox deal goes through in a similar way, they'll lose Aliens, and they've just lost Conan as well because Conan's gone back to Marvel. Yep. Oh, and, uh... I'm also not sure what's happening with Buffy these days. Oh God! Yeah, if they lose because that that must be terrifying for them. Um, but they they're used... about to get the Umbrella Academy on Netflix. So okay, oh, that's... that could be a big thing for that's them. That's something. Fair enough. And don't yeah. they do they do the um, Avatar comics as well? Don't they? Which I think are. Uh... <laughs> decent, decent, decently big thing for them. Hmm. I, they, they now they they've invested a lot in Jeff Lemire, who who's doing trying to do a Mike Mignola and expanding his Black Hammer universe. But who knows where that will go? I don't know if you've read any of those, James. I have not. And so, no. Some of my favorite comics, Black Hammer. I'd recommend. Them. <laughs> Very similar to Hellboy, actually. I like Jeff Lemire. Yeah. I like what I've read of his. So. Huh. Okay. Um, let's it's get. Funny you mentioned Buffy, by the way, because I thought this had a very, a very Buffy vibe. In fact, this had a lot for a film by a visionary like Guillermo del Toro. I had a lot of vibes of different things, like ranging from Men in Black to Buffy to a bit of Farscape. <laughs> just, just it's just basically you've mentioned a load of things that either Doug Jones was casting or could have been casting. <laughs> it's Doug Jones, exactly. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Yeah, no, I did, I did get a Buffy vibe, especially from the sort of final sequence. The martial artsy stuff, like as well with the fight, the fighting feels like it, 
you know, consist. I don't know whether it's that like there is something there's something a little bit cheesy about Hellboy uh, and about this version of Hellboy as well mm-hmm. that you're invested, but you're aware that it's all a little bit silly as you're watching. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Actually, because like that. <sighs> Even though this feels like quite a modern film, you look at those fight se- fight sequences and they all look like what was happening around the Matrix when everyone was doing like super complex martial arts for everything. Oh, mm. I, when when Goss is introduced and he's doing that the martial arts kind yeah. of in the room on his own, I was like, "Is this where's where's the punchline at the end of the scene?" <laughs> like, <laughs> it didn't come. It's interesting how stylistically things have moved on. Because like you just yeah. watch that sequence and you're going like, uh, yeah, yeah, he's doing martial arts and he's really cool. Okay, and the beats early on, like it did, it it did feel something more out of the Blade era of superhero cinema yeah. than it did out out of the 2008 Dark Knight and Iron Man year. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, this is the departure point, isn't it? Yeah. This is you know Hellboy was looking in in a way looking backwards when Dark Knight and Iron Man are looking forwards. Yeah, and that, prim- that's what the culture gri- gripped onto. The prime meridian of superhero movies, <laughs> two thousand and eight. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think the 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 thing that then we are probably all going to agree unanimously it, that's great about this movie is the is the visuals and some of the visual flourishes and some of the creature designs that mm. um, Del Toro comes up with. I was wondering if we could kind of like. Maybe even go around in like kind of like a draft system. We'll 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 draft we'll draft one of them. Maybe we can pick two each because there's so many that like are just like our favorite characters. I'll I'll, I'll I'll be a gentleman and let let the guest go first. Mike, favorite character design in this movie beyond beyond uh, the beyond the leads, obviously. I'm gonna say the tooth fairies are fantastic. Yeah. I got I got I got um, the sort of uh, shiver down my spine that I got when I first saw the Lost World uh, when I was <laughs> however old I was, eleven. The, the the idea of something small and cute that could then you know chew you, <laughs> you know <laughs> you know chew you into tiny little pieces, uh, really quite terrifying. I thought. Because they are really sweet, aren't they? <laughs> like when they reanimate them, when when Kraus reanimates them, one of them as well. You feel so sorry for that little shit. <laughs> that was actually something that, as well, reminded me of some of the stuff that was in the volume of Hellboy that you recommended. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That like there was there was these monsters that you kind of that you, you got some kind of attachment towards, but you also weren't that upset when Hellboy punched them in the face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. And that's yeah. my first pick, definitely. <laughs> the idea of them when you when you see them at the end, like with one of them's just holding a tooth and kind of licking what's left <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. remnants around the tooth, it's just, just soaring away at it, like yeah, like like um, like yeah, like a squirrel with a nut. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> really great, uh, James. Uh, I think the character you design have to go with the Angel of Death. Oh yes, because oh, that was like so that good. was me going when I was looking at that. I was going like, "Oh, this is like the Pan's Labyrinth, Guillermo del Toro." Mm-hmm. Like absolutely, like a maniac sketched something and then brought it to life. Yeah, like, well, I, I love that because it's the closest to something that you'd actually see in a Hellboy comic. Because it's <laughs> much more from a from a gothic haunted house, mm-hmm. witches and ghosts tradition sort of horror. <laughs> And it's also Doug Jones as well. Yeah. <laughs> One of three characters that Doug Jones plays in the He's in like the, movie. the Eddie Murphy of gothic horror. 
<laughs> he also plays the Chamberlain, who's the, the doorkeeper for King Baylor at the start of the movie, <laughs> who I don't really remember. Oh, no, yeah, I do. No, he's got very long fingers. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I think the Angel of Death as well is one where I remember looking at the design and thinking like, oh, this these look a bit Mignola-esque. And like mm-hmm. the Golden Army as well, I've, with their like giant hands and stuff like that reminded me of Mignola's artwork. And I wonder how much that was deliberate. You're right there. The way the way that she moves as well, like the design is fantastic, but the way she's kind of like hunched over and with the with the like shroud over the head, and then mm-hmm. the way it's pulled back, and the fact that that's a character who, in the context of the movie, is kind of like a is kind of a good character who we, <laughs> who like. Who like helps out in a big spot? Again, I would have been stunned if the Angel of Death didn't wasn't a character that um, he was expecting to bring back for his Hellboy three oh, story. Um, yeah. yeah, really great. Um, okay, I love both of those picks, uh, but my pick is the tumor. <laughs> of course, oh, yes. <laughs> I I remember when I first saw. I think that was the moment that sold me on this movie when I first saw it. So that the two fairies, I was like, okay, this is fun. This is different. That's Del Toro <laughs> doing two fairies. Okay, great. Um, and then yeah, this, when, when that and you see, so you first of all, you've seen this like these two very weird monster characters in this like flea flea market for underworld flea market it's kind of like that sequence is like the men in black sequence i think yeah definitely um you've got all, all of these kind of characters i mean i mean to the point where they've literally like a pair of glasses where you can see what they actually look like mm. um yeah and, and i'm pretty sure it's D- doug jones is joey right in the first men in black movie i think he's is he the guy that that transforms at the start i don't know but Doug Jones said, "But yeah, so you you see these characters and they're they're gross, but they're and they're, they're like leathery skin. They almost look like they are like uh, Jim Henson workshop creations, and they're carrying the baby. And I, I love the kind of the 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 comic interplay in that scene with with the kind of the kid interjecting." And and Hellboy kind of like being really polite, really polite to mm. this kid. Like, sorry, so you have to, so you have to see this and all that. And then right at the end, saying, "Oh, like, and look after your baby." I'm not a baby. I'm a tumor. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just something like it's just it's just so weird and incidental. But it's it's a wonderful little moment in this movie, and <laughs> I loved it. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> it's just one of those moments where the the darkness of of the humour comes through, um, rather than the sort of the fae fantasy aspects. Maybe um, I think yeah, both the tooth fairies and the tumour nail that so well. And it's a little bit it's a little bit total recall as well. These kind of weird, and oh yeah, uh, kind of prosthetic creatures. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that total recall is a great show. Yeah. It does uh, the the that. That vibe certainly does feel like you know the the first scenes on Mars in Total Recall or China. I don't know if you want to do the ah the remake, the remake. <laughs> <laughs> the best piece of character design in that movie was John Cho with white hair. That I enjoyed. That was a movie I watched. 
maybe maybe we don't need to pick the others. I, I mean, think we've the, covered the best the, ones there. Well, I mean, we we've spoken about the kaiju earlier. I love mm. how when the kaiju is shot, that the blood kind of becomes foliage in the city in the way it kind of uh, settles around everywhere. And we also mentioned the giant's causeway thing. Hmm. I, I I loved with the um the for, the forest spirit. It reminded me a lot of um Princess Mononoke. Mm. The, the the forest god there <laughs> yeah, where every step creates Oh did it really? Oh yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Both of them. I mean I mean it, sh- it shouldn't be a surprise. I, I mean Spirited Away and Mononoke are stuff that have, you know, been heavy influences on everything that Pixar and uh mm. Disney Animation Studios have done since, so it doesn't surprise <laughs> me that, that that one reference applies, or both of those references apply here. I thought that that big forest monster was gorgeous. Uh, the way its head opened like a seed at the end as well, and started flowering everywhere. I that that was for me what got me through this movie the second time. Like I still like Ron Perlman's performance. I I, I love all of these character designs and the fact that. Every so often in this movie, you're going to get a subversive little gag like the tumour. That just makes it all worthwhile. And, yeah. you know, this this is a movie that's two hours long, and it I don't think it felt it. It felt like it zipped by. Probably because of how, like, episodic it does feel in terms of, like, we've got this action sequence, then we've got this action sequence, we've got this monster, and then that monster, and then that monster, and then the end. Oh, and we, we haven't even mentioned them. I think the Golden Army, the clockwork stuff, I mean, they'll sort of, you know... Almost, it almost seems easy, but Del Toro is just really good at that stuff, and on and the kind of final action sequence taking place over all of the cogs. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind I, of I, like I, that I, final I, battle. The final battle is pretty fun. Uh, it, it, I don't think the film really comes back from that beautiful moment where you know the after the kaiju that that kind of sad beauty of having killed this this god but then all the beauty coming yeah. out of it the, the um the life coming out of it but i i quite like the the golden army sequence i also like how um how how um like of this type of film it is that when johan kraus possesses one of them it changes color <laughs> yeah. it's like such a video gamey type thing yeah it's like we need to be able to tell which one is the good one <laughs> yeah yeah i think what what i like about that final fight scene is just like it it's it's blocked within an inch of its life with with all of the uh the cogs turning mm. so del toro knows yeah precisely what he's doing but i just like putting this fast twiddly martial arts style up against hellboy and there's mm. one shot where i think they're both kind of like like they're running towards something and hellboy's like got these long pounding steps and it's almost mm. like prince noada has got like three or four steps but covering the same amount of distance as uh, as hellboy does with every stride and it's just i i just liked the contrast of the two of them and i thought actually the fighting styles led to something slightly interesting in a in a, in a final sequence when i didn't actually care about what they were fighting about <laughs> so that was something so yeah, it's 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 a weird movie, isn't it? It's it's a very strange movie that that I I kind of like a lot about it, but I'm equally frustrated by a lot about it. Um, I'm definitely glad it exists. Um, I'm glad it exists, and it's something that 
it was a very important film for fans of a certain type of movie, for fans of Guillermo del Toro. Um, but I think as with every year that goes by, it becomes less important. And as, as we, as we, you know, the, the, the past comes into sharper focus the further away we get from it and we realize which are the more important movies of, in the fantasy genre, in the comic book movie adaptation genre, this one becomes less and less important. It's always really fascinating to see fans, you know, Guillermo del Toro for that, for that long stretch after this film where he couldn't get a movie made. Um, people were very defensive and you know, supportive of him, mm. uh, saying, you know, you're, you're preventing him from, um, you know, recognizing his vision, realizing it and so on. Whereas now when he's made an Oscar winning movie, does this movie, it does Hellboy 2 have retained that importance that it did want, it did, used to? It's similar to how people mm. felt about Edgar Wright with uh, Ant-Man in a way. Whereas now Edgar Wright's made Baby Driver and has, it's a, been a, his biggest hit and has been nominated for the Oscars that it should be nominated for and so on. Do we still feel as, Wait, was it was it Ant-Man. nominated for zero Oscars, Mike? <laughs> it was nominated for all the sound Oscars, which I think it, it has a very good shout, shout for. I know the I, I didn't particularly love the film either, but it's a very well edited and sound edited you know, and sound designed film. Do you know? What I think I've increased. I increasingly realise that what that I, I have a scepticism and a problem with a lot of these directors who are very cosy with the movie press. And I say this oh, as yeah. someone who used to be a part of that. <laughs> so it's not it's not like I'm I'm like ah oh, you know you know but just people like Edgar Wright and like to an extent Ryan Johnson except I actually have grown a lot more respect for him I don't think it's mm-hmm. even them I think it's the way that certain people treat them um, there are corners of the movie press and there are and there are and there are also like the fans that cozy up to those corners of the movie press that like. There's this hero worship of these directors sometimes that I don't quite think deserve it. Mm. And there was a period in Del Toro's career that I certainly started raising an eyebrow because, you know, famously very good friends with some of the kind of early American film bloggers, uh, Harry Mm. Knowles being a prominent one amongst them. And... I think effectively at one point basically bankrolled one of Harry Knowles's vanity projects because they were buddies. Right. Uh, and it, it always kind of gave me pause. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what Del Toro has done before and since, I think kind of like, you know, it, 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 it as far as I'm concerned, it stands for itself that these, <laughs> He's made some really good movies. And I think the reason why Hellboy 2 is, as you say, not that important kind of in the, in the like pantheon of the, of comic book movies or the fantasy genre. Even in Del Toro's filmography, it doesn't feel that important because it kind of feels like, like I said, it's got a sprinkling of so many of the other things that he's done mm-hmm. and nothing particularly you know like it, it doesn't feel like completely its own thing it feels slightly it, it feels slightly compromised I think and not not like by the studio but it feels compromised by Del Toro's design that like he was holding back mm-hmm. I was going to say I'm yeah. not sure compromise is the right word because like I got the sense that this is the film he wanted to make yeah I think it's more just 
he maybe lacked the necessary distance from it to decide what it was mm. about. I told, and I've been spending the entire podcast trying to remember what other movie this reminded me of. And it's a movie that um, Del Toro himself uh, uh, wrote and produced. And it was his Don't Be Afraid of the Dark remake, which is a movie that I've not thought of since. But I wow, think right. definitely in some some of the horror elements, uh, the two there are there are creatures in there reminiscent of the two fairies. Um, <laughs> it's a movie that no one ever talks about anymore, but I think is actually pretty decent. I'll have to go back and rewatch it. It's it's really fascinating how he spent twenty five years now, either trying to infuse mainstream movies with his own auteurist vision, or making smaller movies that were probably a little bit too, you know, genre for the art house crowd. And it feels like he's hit the the right, you know, balance with Shape of Water and it's, you know, the response has been good for him. It was, Um, for a long time, he had the reputation of being one of the, you know, one for me, one for them filmmakers. Like, I'll (laughs) make, I'll make... Well, I'll make Mimic for the studio so I can go off and make The Devil's Backbone, and then I'll make yep. Blade 2 in Hellboy so I can go off and make Pan's Labyrinth. And I'll make Hellboy 2 so I can go off and, ah, no, not make any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating filmography when you look back on it. I don't, I doubt that we're going to get um, an opportunity to cover one of his movies again in terms of anything that he makes new. Um, True. But, but I'm I'm now looking forward to going back and watching Blade Two because I like I said I can barely remember it, but I do know that it's kind of like it's the Blade movie that people hold up and say, "Yeah, that's the one." It's the one I remember. But, good. But is that the sort of Alfonso Cuarón Prisoner of Azkaban thing where because it's a named director, people like that's the one you remember <laughs> as being good? Wait, are you saying that the Prisoner of Azkaban is not the best one? <laughs> oh no, no, I think it's the best one. I, yeah. I completely do, but I've seen the argument made, which is from people who think that the David Yates films are better in the Harry Potter franchise, uh, the, that people only focus in on Prisoner of Azkaban because pe- it's auteurism and it's Alfonso Cuaron. Okay, Harry Potter corner. Uh, Prisoner, of Az- <laughs> Prisoner of Azkaban is the best one because it's the best book for a start, so they get so they mm-hmm. get to adapt some of the best stuff. Um, it's the best one because it does stand on its own and feel like something completely distinct from the rest of the series and is... And, and, because you've got your kind of your, your two like hack movies from Chris Columbus, and then you've got <laughs> you've got your like actu- actually really well crafted um, eye on a long term franchise stuff that comes afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's it's not. It would have been you know it would have been terrible I think for the Harry Potter franchise if they'd have tried to bring in someone as Alfonso Cuarón for every one of those films afterwards. But in terms of that one movie that gets to be like that, yes, it is the best one. It's not it's not great in a in a like let's tie the franchise together one because it does stand out so so mm-hmm. much from the others. Well it's 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 sort of like what you've been saying about the Christopher Nolan Batman films. It's like the, the geography's different <laughs> from all all other all of the films. You can't even you know do a through line for what Hogwarts is there to the other films. Mm. It's and they, and it create makes Hogwarts into such a character in its own right that almost breaks the <laughs> if you watch the franchise the films back to back, it almost breaks the continuity. Um <laughs> Come on, let, like let's stop talking let's, about let's get back stop on track. talking about kids stuff and start talking about comics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Ah, well, I think that might have brought our um, <laughs> Hellboy conversation to a close. Um, James, do you have a comic book recommendation based on this for our listeners, given that you've never read any Hellboy? Or is there something else that you would you would recommend that's a bit of a stretch away from it? No, I think the only place, like, Hellboy as a property is so disconnected from everything and such a kind of juggernaut in its own right, I think the only place you can go is the Hellboy comics after this. And as previously discussed, I don't have any particular recommendation or affinity for them. I'll get to them one day. But. Right, Mike, I didn't ask you to prepare this, um, mm-hmm. but can you, can you throw some recommendations <laughs> to our listeners? Because this is one that I might be interested in following up on as well. <laughs> well me because, too, to be honest. Yeah, I did I, I did like my first run-in with Hellboy, and I'd be... I'd be intrigued to do it again i mean okay well here's a question for mike then which is mm-hmm. is there any reason to not start with the first volume and just go from there i'd say well for the for the last film i recommended from you know start hellboy from the beginning and just go go on and you'll 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 uh, you'll be well on your way there and i probably off the back of this film if there's anything you liked about this film it you should probably start from the beginning of of Hellboy, the Seed of Destruction is the first volume, um, and it, the 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 series really gets going. Maybe a few stories in, it hits its stride and finds its own tone. Um, but f- off off the Golden Army, I, I thought maybe of recommending that one of you know the first major um, spin-off series, which is BPRD, sort of coming off some of these characters we've been talking about in the film. If you wanted to learn more about the way that Liz Sherman and Abe Sapien and and Johan Krauss have, have been uh, uh, you know, how they are in the comics. I'd recommend reading BPRD, and it does become quite self-contained very quickly. So you did, your Hellboy's not in it, and it just really um, ties that continuity too hard. There's a the good thing about Hellboy is that there are the, the slim individual, say, 120-page trade paperbacks, but they have been collected into omnibus editions um, that do pop up in Comicsology sales quite frequently. Um, and for BPRD, there is quite a thick kind of 400 page one called Plague of Frogs, which collects a lot of the early BPRD comics. And in a similar way to Hellboy, um, many of these stories were self-contained kind of one shots or maybe half issue length, uh, you know, stories with varying artists and sometimes, um, co-writers coming in. Uh, so it's a bit piecemeal and episodic, but it gets you well on the way to um, figuring out what BPRD is. Uh, so, that, yeah, that's the Plague of Frogs. and it, Because soon after that, BPRD has its own huge mythos. The, the BPRD are fighting the Frog Army. Um, uh, you know, almost a perfect Mike Mignola creation. These um, uh, ugly, but also kind of cute, very dangerous um, monsters who are oversized frogs. Um, I've just googled but, them. They look fantastic. They do, and kind of like um, you know, I read it. I reread an issue last night, and it reminded me of the the part with the tooth fairies um, in this film, where they're just overrun with these things, and they're just you know, it's <laughs> it's a it's a team. It's, it reminds me of Aliens at times, where it's this squad going in and doing a bug hunt. Um, but also the great thing about starting from the beginning of BPRD is that you then get the seeds for a few of the other spin-off series. So very quickly, Abe Sapien has his own spin-off series, 
and then there's Lobster Johnson as well, who is a a a, a like a almost a a throwback hero um, from the mid early twentieth century. Um, so there's a there's there's a lot. I, I it's it's very overwhelming, and there are multiple um, reading orders out there. And I can understand how Hellboy can be very overwhelming. It's it is so intimidating, especially when you walk into a comic book shop and you see the Hellboy kind of section, and you're like, <laughs> okay, like so there's the so there's yeah. Hellboy, yeah. there's Hellboy in the BPRD, there's just the BPRD, there's that spinoff, there's there's that spinoff. So, so one like, thing I will say is Hellboy in the BPRD, which is the current series that's running sort of hellboy in hell's wrapped up abe sapien has wrapped up and bprd uh, has also wrapped up quite re- well it's called hell on earth at that point has just wrapped up um hellboy in the bprd is the current series which is sort of filling in the blanks and they're all period stories going through from uh, 1952 onwards um with hellboy after he's joined the bprd and his you know his inactive service but before the whole mythos has kicked in of the main Hellboy series, and they're quite self-contained stories of, ver- of varying lengths, with a little, with a few kind of uh, teases dropped in for future reference. But they're actually qu- a pretty good place to start as well. If you go and pick up actually any single issue of Hellboy, the reason why I originally got into Hellboy, and I think very few comics are like this now. And what it's what I love about comics is that you can just pick up an issue off the shelf. You know, you, you go into the comic shop and you see the, the, new, the new comics section, pick up a, a, an issue of Hellboy and the BPRD, and if it's a part one, it's a story you'll be able to understand and enjoy right off the bat. So there's that approach as well. So, Mike, here's my here's my other question. Um, mm-hmm. Where would you recommend reading Hellboy? Would you recommend going out and picking up the physical copies or... Like, is Comixology your best bet? Where, where do you go for Hellboy? So, it's 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 a sort of habit thing. As I started picking up single issues because that's what was it, it, it became a casual thing of oh I didn't realize there was a new issue out this month, so that's how I started reading it. But um, I've very recently reached saturation point in my house for physical media, <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm about ten. I, I have a shelf which has, you know, 10 volumes of Hellboy and then some BPRD and then some Hellboy and BPRD. And I've moved over to Comixology because also, um, I don't know if you've ever done this, Joe, but when there's a, a long running series that suddenly pops up on Comixology in a 99 cent or 99p sale and you can just get a whole run of Hellblazer or Preacher that's the best way in some ways to get it because it's the lowest risk as well because you can get you know, you know 50 comics for for 50 pounds as yeah. opposed to having to go out and buy the the volumes where they take up space and you're probably spending 10 pounds per volume but that's the question that everyone has to answer with comics right yeah it's difficult i, I i've kind of like accumulated a collection of physical comics over the time that I've been doing um, the podcast and um, some of them I'm very glad that I've got copies of and some of them I'm like so that's still on my shelf yeah, yeah. the thing I would say about Hellboy is that it's never it's not going anywhere um, m- m- many of the stories if you were starting from the beginning many of those stories have been fi- are finished so it is something that you can say for a rainy day if there's a comicsology sale that pops up I know I have a few si- you know series like that 
yeah. that I'm, I'm saving for the Comicsology sale that makes it available to me. <laughs> or, 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 you know, I've recently signed up to Marvel Unlimited and I'm now finally getting to grips with a lot of Marvel stuff I've not read before. Um, so sometimes saving stuff for a rainy day is a good good option too. Absolutely. Okay, uh, well, we'll move on now. Uh, and so what would normally be our final section, the pitch? Mike, I know you're a bit upset that you don't actually get to do the pitch on the main episode. <laughs> A little bit, but um, I, yeah, I, yeah, only because it's become such a spirited conversation every episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, for the pitch this week, I, I was considering doing some Hellboy, uh, and then I saw a news item, and I thought, oh, that's just written my pitch for me. Um, the headline of this news item was, Gary Oldman is still waiting for Marvel, Marvel Studios to call him. So apparently Gary Oldman's kids are big MCU fans and they want their dad to appear in a Marvel movie in the near future. So the pitch that uh, will be uh, pitched on the minisode is which MCU role would you cast Can... Gary Oldman in? The only rule is you can't pick um, J. Jonah Jameson. That's the that... only one that you can't right. pick. I was going to suggest we veto the switcheroo. Yes, yeah. that that's out. Um, Mike... If you like, oh, wow. uh, you could you could record it and send it in, and we'll we'll put that on the podcast, and and you can go up against Seven James. I imagine Seb will definitely have thoughts on this, though. Yeah, I can't wait to hear, hear what he's got. <laughs> yeah. um, so, listeners, um, if you want to hear that pitch, tune in to our mini-sode next week, which, if you haven't heard the new format, it's now um, all three of us talking comic book movie news, doing the pitch. Um, and uh, we got some good feedback from last week. I think people are glad that it's no longer me talking to myself. <laughs> um but that's it for this week so mike thanks so much for joining us to uh to talk hellboy 2 and um i think we did a you know a bunch of our own little spin-offs within the podcast there as well we got some we got some harry potter we got some oscars all all sorts of stuff in there yeah thanks for asking me back it's always a pleasure (laughs) yeah so as i said you are you are banned from our hellboy reboot episode but I'm sure right. that we'll find something <laughs> something else to invite you back for um, throughout the year. Our New Year's resolution is to have more guests. Because I think last year you were like one of two or three guests that we had throughout the entire year. I think we're going to try and make it a more regular occurrence. But hopefully not always just replacing one of Seven James when, when they're unable to attend. Hopefully we'll have... Yeah, Mike, at some point you might be able to come on the podcast. It'll be all three of us and you. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can get a word in edgeways. Yeah. <laughs> Unlikely. Um, but yeah, so that is it for this week's show. If you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe. And I'm going to change this. Um, I've just I've just deleted my um, podcasts app on my iPhone because I was sick of how buggy it had got, <sighs> especially after Apple had decided to deliberately slow down my phone. So this week I'm going to say, if you're enjoying the show, then please do su- subscribe on overcast which is now my new app of choice uh spotify where we totally are now um or anywhere else that that podcasts are available um you can support us on patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe we have one new uh, patron uh so thanks to ashley johnson thanks ashley johnson you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicuniverse.com you can get in touch via facebook on twitter at cine underscore verse And you can send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.
I've seen gods fly. I've seen men build weapons that I couldn't even imagine. I've seen aliens drop from the sky. But I've never seen anything like this. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Black Panther. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.